0: We want to welcome everyone on this lovely, beautiful December day. What a beautiful, beautiful day it is. Uh, I can't believe that we're into December this far, and we've been seeing some sunshine. What a wonderful, beautiful December, And, and I know we had a little sprinkle last night. I don't know how much we may have had, or we had a sprinkle sometime, because I've seen puddles of water. Anyway, we want to welcome everyone today, and we want to welcome all of the uh, folks that may be uh, tuning in to, to the uh, YouTube, or rather to rumble, and they may want to rumble here today with us, and we want to welcome all those folks that live all across the United States and uh, in other countries. We, we are humbled to have you with us, and we're so grateful to have this congregation of sheep people here today covenant people they all share one common thing and that is they have all come to worship God all of them qualify as sheep people and we're delighted to have this congregation so we want to thank all the folks that may be joining us wherever you may be living we pray that everyone is feeling happy it's not always you know it's not always true that life Uh, leaves us with pleasant thoughts and happiness but maybe we ought to just smile and be grateful for all the blessings that surround us you may have heard about the story of the man from New York who had lived in New York City all of his life but he decided to go on a vacation he went to Pennsylvania where some of the Amish folks lived many of them. And uh, while he is there, he becomes enamored with horses, decides to buy him a horse. So he buys a stock trailer, rents a pasture over somewhere in New York, and decides to take a horse back with him. And he negotiated with this Amishman to buy this horse, and the Amishman told him it was a very nice, obedient horse. So he said, just remember this, when you want the horse to go, you say, thank God. And when you want the horse to stop, you say, amen. All you have to do is remember those words and you're going to be fine. So the man gets on the horse, says, thank God. horse starts walking around and they're out in the countryside. There's a big high bluff that they're not very far from, but the man says to the horse, you're such a good horse, I think that I'm going to buy you. And about that time, a bee stung the horse, and he's off toward the cliff. The horse gets inches from the edge of the cliff, and the man says, "Uh, Amen. The horse stops, and the guy looks up to heaven and says, Thank you, God. (laughs) Well, anyway, if you... Would be so kind this morning to turn in your Bible to the gospel according to Luke chapter number 6. In the words of Jesus, St. Luke chapter number 6 will begin reading at verse number 46. And I encourage and invite everyone to join with us in the reading. Everyone is encouraged, and I want to thank all the folks this morning for joining in the reading. Beginning in verse 46, Luke chapter 6, words of Jesus, And why call ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and it could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth, and doeth not, is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let us pray. God our Father, thank You for the enduring, persevering Word of God through the centuries that You have given us a revelation, O merciful God that has survived empires, wars and rumors of wars, nations have come and gone, kings have ruled and reigned, but your word endures forever. And we are confident, Father in heaven, that the words of Christ will be true when he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Upon that word we rely today, Father in heaven, we purpose to build our lives upon the truth and veracity of that word. We ask you now, Father in heaven, for and on behalf of all this congregation of your covenant people, that you would inspire us all to build a house of faith that is resting on the rock, the rock being our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O merciful God, to build upon the rock that the storms of life, that the winds may blow and the rains may pour down, but our house will stand and survive amid all the trials and tribulations of this life and world. So, living God, guide us In this lesson today for we know as the scripture has said except the Lord build the house they labor in vain that build it except you guide this lesson father in heaven it will be no more than a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass father in heaven into your hands we commit the next few minutes may your name be glorified your kingdom advanced and everyone in this congregation be motivated and inspired to build a house of faith resting upon the rock. In Christ our Savior, I pray. Amen. Beloved, we live in a very turbulent world. Sometimes we wonder if the world is going to hold together from day to day. And someone has said that the year 2024 coming up, is probably going to be one of the more decisive years in the history of America. Nobody knows how it's going to all turn out yet. There's a lot of forecasting going on. But one thing we may be sure that whatever may be ahead God holds the future in His hand. In the safest way the best way to prepare for what lies ahead, whatever that may be, is to have a house of faith that's built on the rock. Jesus said in speaking to his disciples in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now we all know that the rock is the divinity of Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock. He is God in human form that came to this earth. As the kinsman redeemer for the people, he died to redeem. So he is the foundation. He is the rock. And if our faith is resting on Christ, remembering the words of St. Paul, Galatians 2.20, St. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I live, I live by the faith of Christ Jesus who died for me. So we want to be sure that our Bedrock foundation is resting on the rock that is making all things right with God our Father through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ by whose stripes we are healed, by whose faith we will stand, and by whose help we will endure and build this house of faith that so many in our generation are facing the future without. So may God be praised today. And uh, we're going to be uh, receiving our little worksheets today. Maybe you already have one. But in any event... Once you have established an impregnable foundation with Christ, you have confessed your sins and made all things right with the God who gave you life through the remedy of the blood of Christ. That's the foundation upon which you build. Now, building a house of faith is not easy in our generation because some of the building materials that are being sold from the pulpits of twentieth, 21st century America, very, very, very poor building materials. I'm speaking of cotton candy theology and marshmallow fluff. So let's go back and let's lay... Upon the foundation of Christ. An impregnable house. That will stand against the test of time. Now there are many many points. Of biblical truth. That you need to build a faith on. But I've selected for discussion here today. Four points that I think. Are essential. Once you have laid your foundation in Jesus Christ. You believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, the divine inspiration, preservation of God's Word. So now you're ready to take your faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and take the Bible and build your house of faith. Now the Bible is a rather massive book of 66 different books. Containing uh, 3,3100,102 verses, 1,189 chapters. So it's a lot of verses there to deal with. And it's nothing short of amazing to see what the denominational church world and the 21st century have done with those 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. It's amazing. Every day there's a new denominational church being formed somewhere. There's so many of them now that they're about to run out of names. And some of them have some real strange names. So what we want to do today is talk about four points of theology. And you know when you're building a building, you know you got four corners. Now, there may be other points of Your faith that would be equal to these, but I'm not sure that there would be. I'm kind of of the opinion that if you get these four points right, you're off to building a very, very strong, impregnable house of faith. But I'll let you be the judge of that. And may the Holy Spirit guide us, because we're going to talk about the first major point, which is God's law. God's law. I don't know how many of us stop to think, folks, of the debt we owe to our Hebraic Hebrew Hebrew forebears. They were Hebrews before they were Israelites. They were Adamites before they were ever Israelites. And that foundation laid by the early, earliest white aristocracy called Hebrews. They alone among all the people of the earth had it right. They were the first people on earth to recognize there's only one true God. They were the first people on earth to receive that revelation from God. And may I add that they were the only people that ever received that revelation direct from God. Everyone else borrowed it from the original recipients. And number two, they were also made to know and understand what sin is. They were given the law to determine what good is. How do you find good? You define it by God's law. How do you fi- define sin? You define sin by God's Word. And how do you understand the Bible by knowing who it is written to for and about? The Bible is a revelation written to a people. If you write a letter... To someone, you're not writing it to the whole world. Not to all your neighbors. When God wrote the Bible, he didn't write it for the whole world. Now, some people choke on that. He wrote it for the people that he sent it to. Genesis 5.1, this is the book. Of the generations of Adam. Case closed. It's not the book of anyone else. When he identified the people that would be the recipients of his grace, they were all Hebraic, Adamites, but he gave them a new name and they took on the name of their father, their ancestor Jacob. So they were then called Israelites. So they migrated from the name original name, Adamites, became Hebraic people, descended from Eber, the line of Shem, and then on out to Israel. And then, that word salvation is a word that is critical. Did God intend to save the world? If that was God's intention... How's it working out? If it was God's intention to save the world, help me. How's it working out? It isn't. But what if we were to believe that God chose from the foundation of the world a people to be the recipients of His grace? And when Jesus in John 17, verse 2 said... Words of Jesus, John 17, verse 2, Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he, Jesus Christ, should give eternal life to everyone that God the Father gave him. So God is not going to lose anybody. He chose an elect company Before time, to be called in time, to be saved in time. God is not sitting up in heaven, biting his fingernails, wondering, who's going to choose me today? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. John 15, verse 16. So let's talk about law. What does the Bible say about law? Now you know what the majority of Christians believe. They believe the law is invalid, nullified by the blood of Christ. In fact, a lot of preachers delight in saying the law was nailed to the cross. Lie. The record of your sin is what was nailed to the cross the record of my sin. Not the law, the record of our sin. So looking at our sheet, what does the Bible say about law? Well, let's just look and see what the Bible does say. I've got the verses out there, so you don't even have to turn in your Bible. Let's look at Romans seven twelve. Wherefore, the law is holy, And the commandment, holy and just and good. Does that sound like something that God would suddenly throw away? Don't think so. Or what about Psalm 19, 7 through 9? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, wait a minute. If something's perfect and it converts the soul, should we abandon that? Don't think so. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. How would you ever be able to read those beautiful words and say they're no longer relevant? But they do, up and down America today, and the Christian world. Now so, the question is, what is the law? The law of God is the definition of good, as opposed to evil. And expresses the righteousness of God's holiness and character. Proverbs 28, 9 is a good little verse. He that turns away his from, ear from hearing the law, what's the promise? Even his prayer shall be an abomination. So the Bible says God doesn't even hear our prayers if we deny the truth of his law. That's a real sort of powerful thought. So God's law is the boundary between good and evil. It's the boundary that separates good from evil. Can we really believe that we do not need to discern between good and evil just because we're living in the 21st century? There will never be a day when we do not need to discern between good and evil. But let's look at Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Watch this. For by the deeds of the law is the knowledge of sin. That is a powerful statement because it's saying that without the law, we have no knowledge of what sin is. Now imagine being part of a church that cannot define sin. Because they've abandoned the law and believe that it's been abrogated, annulled, or done away with. So now they do do not have a definition of what sin is. And I'd like to enter into the record, Romans 7, 7. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law Sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. That's a powerful statement. I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust. I couldn't define lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, Romans 7, 7. Those are powerful verses. Very, very powerful deep verses. So we know then that the law is very, very important. The law is a constant in the universe. No less than the law of gravity has been in operation from the foundation of the creation. And God's moral standard for His entire universe, there's a a moral law that operates, it's constant. In every generation, the constant of God's law meets up with man's rebellion into sin, and God's law always wins. Sin never wins, but God's law does. Because the law is a reflection of God's righteousness. So what does the Bible say about sin? Let's move on to sin for a minute. We know that law defines good. The Hebrews introduced the world to the one true living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Not multiple gods, one God. So what does the Bible say about sin? Let's read it from the record. 1 John 3, 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. I rest my case. Sin is the transgression of the law. Do away with the law. And you no longer can define sin. Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. James 2 verses 9 through 10 But if ye have respect to persons you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, is guilty of all. So that's, that's why we need a Savior. If righteousness were to be achieved by the law, it would have to be kept in perfection. Since we're flawed from original Arrival into the world, we arrive into the world flawed. We have no ability to keep the law in perfection. We need a Savior. So moving on, we know that, firstly, sin is transgression of God's law, and overstepping of the law, the divine boundary between good and evil. That's what law is. It's missing the mark the mark of God's righteous law. And then next, B, sin being the transgression of the law is the only means by which the guilt of the sinner can be established. So the law is necessary to establish the guilt of the sinner and point them to Christ as the only remedy for sin. Now, here's what we all need to know, folks. All White, Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Scandinavian people descended from Adam have an urgent, compelling need to make things right with God. So what happens if we walk through life and we don't make things right with God? And we carry the guilt of sin in our subconscious being. Do you know what happens? That is why white people kneel down in front of Black Lives Matter and confess sins allegedly of other white generations. Yes, we had Thousands of white people that kneeled down in front of BLM and pleaded for their forgiveness. The only forgiveness they needed is at the cross of Christ. Not BLM. BLM is not going to give them anything but trouble. Sorrow and heartache. But we live in a generation of People that are guilty before God's righteous law and have no clue how to unload the guilt because the pulpits have refused to preach God's law. What a sad commentary on the pulpits of our generation. And so number letter number E. Or rather see we can say as long as sin exists the law will be there to judge sin can we accept that as long as there is sin in the world the law is going to define sin and judge it you can count on it Romans 3 Romans five, thirteen. for until the law Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Think about that statement. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. Do away with law? You no longer have any authority to even talk about sin. Is it any wonder why American churches are becoming empty? Cotton candy... and marshmallow fluff, filling the pulpits. If there is no law, then sin cannot be imputed. If there is no sin, and no law to define that sin, there is no guilt. And if all guilt is not dealt with, then there's no need of a Savior. Is it any wonder why we do not have revival in America? In the absence of the law, nobody feels guilty of anything. But when we teach and proclaim the righteousness of God's law, the law is perfect, converting the soul, turning our minds to a different path in life. Now we run across the word iniquity, and many, many times the Bible will remind us of the need to confess not only our sin, but our iniquity. Well, sin is transgression of the law, but what is iniquity? Well, iniquity, beloved, is doing something right, but doing it in the wrong way. For example, Uzzah had his hand on the ark. 2 Samuel 6, 6 and 7. And Uzzah was doing something good. He was helping to move the ark. That's a noble thing. Let's transport the ark to a new location. Nothing wrong with that. But he was doing it the wrong way. Because God said the ark had to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And Uzzah and his helper were transporting it in an ox cart. Drawn by oxen. And when the ark was shaking over rough ground. Uzzah doing something that was good. Moving the ark. Reached out to study the ark. And was instantly dead. It's called iniquity. Iniquity is very dangerous. It's doing the right thing in the wrong way. So for the benefit of our children. Your parents tell you to do something. You reluctantly go do it. But you only do it. Your way. You dismiss your dad's way. I did that one time when I was nearing eight years of age. My dad told me never ever climb on my horse. So one day he told me to lead the horse to the barn, which was a considerable distance away. And my father was busy talking to a neighbor, so I thought, well, I'm, my dad's busy. It's ridiculous for me to walk all that way. I'm going to ride this horse. So I jump on the horse, and he lets me on it, but I knew that he didn't want me on it because I had to work hard to get on him in the saddle. But a few minutes later, after jumping two corral fences... He headed for the high timber. He unseated me, it was January, and I fell on frozen ground and broke my hip one half inch from the socket. So I've had Jacob's bad leg all, my day, all the days of my life. Doctors have been into my leg three times for my act of iniquity. That's a lasting memory. So when I see the word iniquity, I'm, I'm on the back of a horse and I remember what I did wrong. I did something that my dad told me to do. Yes, take the horse to the barn. But we sailed past the barn. So I didn't get to tie that horse up. And when my dad found me lying on the ground, he said, okay, you're going to ride the horse now. Well, I was immobile, so he realized that in a little while and decided there was a, it was too late for that. So I just mentioned what iniquity is. It's doing the right thing in the wrong way. It can be transferred to a lot of things in our life. Okay, can I say this? Yeah, I will. It's a good thing to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. If the angels celebrated his birth, why shouldn't we? Why should we let the angels do something that we don't have the conviction to do? But if I, if I place Santa Claus and Christmas trees and mistletoes and ham dinners, and I go into debt with my credit card and pile up gifts for everyone. Never give a gift to Christ, the only one that received gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I can celebrate the birth of Christ, but in the wrong way. I think it's defined as iniquity. Very quiet in here. We may be more like a Methodist church where they only say, once in a while, amen. So, sin is like that constant in the universe. Every generation is going to be judged for sin as defined by the law. So, sin is not imputed where there is no law. Think about that. Romans 4.15, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Think of the profound nature of those words, Romans 4.15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Remove the law, and there's no sin. Could that be one of the reasons why they wanted to take away the law from theology? And then E. Now, here's a big one. I'm on letter E. I'm, I think I'm on page... Well, I, I'm not sure where I'm at. Well, does grace... Grace is the unmerited favor of God conferred upon ill-deserving sinners... Question now, does grace nullify or make void the law of God, which alone gives grace its meaning for God's payment of our sin debt? So, question, does the grace of God nullify the law? Does grace mean that there is no more law? I'll tell you what we have preached from American pulpits today is a lot of cheap grace. Because grace has become a license to sin. You're covered by grace. And if you sin, grace has covered you. That's, that's a very, very dangerous walk in life to be walking So what does the Bible say then? How about Romans 6, 1? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, transgression of the law, that grace may abound? If grace is going to alleviate us from sin, shall we not only... Sin a little bit, but sin a lot. So that grace can really have a heyday in our life. What does the Bible say? Romans 6, 1. God forbid. Boy, I'll tell you, everybody's Bible ought to be marked here. God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. I don't know how denominational church preachers, why do they ignore the, 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 the perfect Word of God? Do people not read their Bibles? Would you sit in a church and hear God's law disgraced or done away with? And in this generation, nobody wants to know anything about sin. Don't make me uncomfortable in my sin. Take away my guilt and let me live my life as a happy, go-lucky person. I don't need to worry about anything. I don't need to make my life right with God through faith in Christ. Just make me happy. Don't tell me how sinful I am. Don't tell me that abortion is murder. Don't tell me that homosexuals deserve the death penalty if they refuse to confess their sin. Don't tell me that race-mixing is a criminal act under God's law. You'll make me feel uncomfortable. Don't preach it. Don't teach it. Thus, it's not taught in many churches today. And so we come then to the idea that grace is not a license to sin. The blood of Jesus Christ came at a great price, and the only reason that grace has a place is because it, it, it is the unmerited favor of God. It is the gift of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Amen. Ephesians 2.8. So we really need to hold on. You see how, how important the book of Romans is? Do you know that one of the brightest men in the Western world that ever lived, he's been dead for a long time, said that the book of Romans is the greatest theological masterpiece. It's the Magna Carta of New Testament understanding of God's law. It's in inevitably it's one of the foundational books of the Bible on the teaching of sin, law and guilt. So now let's come to that last point. We've talked about the law, we've talked about sin, and we've talked about those two principles. Now let's talk about Israel, and salvation. The last two. And we'll move along rather quickly, so let's dig in here. So what does the Bible say about Israel and salvation? Obviously, you know the whole world is is, uh, devoted today to the idea that God wants to save everybody. Everybody. One and all. But what does the Bible say? In the words of Jesus, Matthew 15, 24, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what if Jesus walked into the big Baptist church up here in Nevada, this marvelous structure, and Jesus opened up his Bible lesson and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel they would not know what to do with that statement. Some of them would do a meltdown. Others would probably just get up and leave. So what does the Bible say about Israel? Deuteronomy 35, 4. For the Lord Jehovah hath chosen Israel unto himself for his peculiar treasure. That's what the Bible says. Amos 3, 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Oh my, does that mean God doesn't like anybody else? No, it doesn't mean that at all. You only have I known foreknowledge before the foundation of the world. And because I knew you, Above all other people, I am going to punish you for all your iniquities. And all the Israel nations today are under heavy punishment for their violation of their father's law. Psalm 147, 19 and 20. Think about these words. He showeth his word unto Jacob. His statutes and judgments unto Israel. Didn't say the whole world. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. They have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. That is pretty pointed, church. How do you wiggle away from the validity of Psalm 147, 19, and 20. I don't know. They do it. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 1 and verse 8. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and judgments which I teach you to do them. For what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 8. Now, I'm going to give you one more verse, and these verses could be multiplied ad infinitum. You know that. You've read your Bible. Let me give you a a verse that is really powerful. I hear it quoted very seldom, but I think it's a cardinal point on on what God said about his people called Israel. Now the name Israel, the word Israel appears 2,578 2, times in the Bible. But here is what 2 Samuel 724 says regarding Israel. For thou, O God, Jehovah, has confirm to thyself thy people israel to be a people unto thee forever how long is forever god confirmed in one of the most important covenant chapters of the bible second samuel 7 that's the foundation for the davidic covenant that god chose israel to be a people unto himself forever, and thou, Israel, or rather, and thou, Jehovah, are become their God. Did you know that the covenant name of God is Jehovah, or you may use Yahweh? I use Jehovah because the King James translators thought that was the better one. Thou hast confirmed to thyself, thy people Israel forever, and thou, God, art become their God. Do you know no other people on earth are ever referred to in Jehovah's instruction to his people Israel? It's a covenant name. It is the covenant name of Israel in relationship to their God. Very important. So now, we think about the importance of all this, church, and we ask ourselves the question. Now, this is pretty monumental. What people under heaven were placed under the law? Of the commandments statutes and judgments let me read it from the Bible I'm gonna read Romans 319 I know we've been in Romans a lot Romans 319 now we know that whatsoever the law saith it saith to them who are under the law it's not speaking to the whole world it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So what people were placed under the law? He showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. Psalm 147, 19 and 20. So we conclude then, church, that sin cannot be imputed where there is no law. So the the people that ought to make things right with God are Israelites. You see, it's one thing to know who you are, it's altogether another thing. To make sure that your genetic heritage is not the only octane in your gas. If you're standing and depending on race only, your house will crumble. You can count that as a prophecy or whatever else you want to say. Without Christ, the foundation of your faith, your genetics... Will crumble one day. You must, you must, you must have Christ. If your faith in Christ is not a higher priority than who you are, you are yet to learn what it means to be a Christian and to belong to Christ. So the Bible tells us then, Romans 5, 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Is God going to judge the noisome beasts that rioted in the summer of 2020? Is God going to judge them? He left it to man to judge those people. God isn't going to call him up on the day of judgment and judge him for lighting fires in 60 cities of America, bringing down police stations, bringing down federal buildings. A few of them are, were arrested, but none of them ever served any prison sentence. The prison sentences were reserved to the January 6th peaceful protesters mostly. And the only violence in that whole million body march were the embedded FBI agents who led the parade of violence with their helpers Antifa and BLM. So church, the question now, having examined law and grace, having examined sin and how sin is imputed, and having identified Israel as the recipients of God's law and the recipients of His grace... How do we appropriate and deal with the issue of salvation? So in our world today we have millions and millions and millions of people who honestly believe, sincerely many of them, they believe that they choose God. They choose God. It's a man-centered faith. God is in heaven waiting for them to choose Him. So the preachers beg them to come to the altar. The only people that are going to come to the altar are the ones that God drags to the altar to confess their sin and make things right. And God will inspire their heart. God alone will draw them to the altar. Yes, America needs an altar call. We need an altar call for all the Israelites of this land who are living in transgression of the law, unaware of their guilt and their urgent need for Christ. So, do we then make void the law through faith? The answer is, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Everyone needs to mark Romans 3.31. That one verse Dispels all the anti law sentiments of the pulpits across this land. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish, we establish the law. So, church, in closing here, because we've got to really hurry, there are three purposes for the law. Help me to finish quickly. Three purposes. Number one, The Law defines sin, establishes the guilt of the sinner. The Law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. The Law accuses, convicts, judges, and condemns us as guilty before a holy God. We as a sinner, with a right heart, honor God. We honor God by confessing our sin by the standard of the law, God's righteousness. We confess our guilt. We acknowledge our sin, that we are justly condemned by the law. And before a holy God we stand condemned and ready to be judged. Christ on our behalf has endured the penalty of death and suffering by taking that judgment which belonged to us and transferring it to himself as our substitutionary sacrifice. For by grace are ye saved through faith. It is the gift of God. What a gift salvation is. So the gift of law is that it leads us to Christ. Number two. The law is the standard by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The only way we become saints from the word sanctified is by the sanctification and work of the Holy Spirit. But I need to confirm that with a verse. I have a lot of verses here, but I'm just going to give you one. This is a good one. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of Christ, because God from the beginning hath chosen you, all you Israelites, to salvation through Sanctification of the Spirit. To be sanctified means that you will purpose to live your life under Christ and not walk the way of the wicked. Will you live a sanctified life? That's the purpose and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And finally, without turning to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10, St. Paul says the law is good, the law is is really good if it's used lawfully. Qualifier. Because God intended the law for the wicked. It was intended to put a check on wickedness so that legislatures in governments ruled by men would not legislate their own laws, but legislate God's righteous statutes." So there would be statutory criminal violations for abortion, as there was in this country. From Jamestown 1607 until 1973, that's a long, long span of history, more than Three hundred and fifty years, abortion was murder. Now it's met. Now it's not only approved by the government, but the government uses tax money to enforce it or to make it available. Should have said, race mixing was wrong from Jamestown till nineteen sixty. Loving versus Virginia overturned 360 years of interracial marriage being a criminal act. So the law was given that godly men in government would legislate God's statutory law and not our own. That was the third purpose of the law. And finally, dear congregation, in closing this lesson, I remind us all that when Christ went to the law, when Christ went to the cross, I'd like you to think about this. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3.13, For Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That verse really, really needs to be remembered. Because it points out the fact that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, not from the law. The penalty of the law is what Jesus paid at Calvary. So He took the curse that belonged to us as guilty sinners and endured the pain and the suffering of Calvary in our place. He took the curse and we were the recipients of His grace. What a God, what a Savior! Let's stand.